All right, take your Bibles and open to Psalm chapter 51. Psalm 51. Uh, talking about learning to crop sin out of our lives. Let me pray and then we'll begin in uh, Psalm 51. Father, we thank you for a time to open your word, a time to, uh, to be in your presence, a time, Father, to um, enjoy fellowshipping at your table as your spirit feeds us and nourishes us. I pray this morning as we, as we dive into this deep, um, deep, deep well of what it is to be a confessing people and a continually repenting people, uh, help us to understand the value of repentance, not just the fear of the discipline, but the value of repentance and what that does in our Christian walks, um, the purifying and the cleansing that happens through that. I pray that your spirit in a special way today would take your word and truly apply it like a, a salve to our hearts. There are places, Lord, that uh, we are hurt and we have hurt others with our sin. And, and uh, we want to come this morning to your table to learn what you tell us to do as uh, David's example is played out before our eyes. Lord, you uh, called him a man after your own heart despite some of the, the high-handed and defiant ways that he sinned against you. But it's in his repenting um, that we see somebody who is pursuing Christ. So help us to be a repenting people. Help us to be a people of the book. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're in Psalm 51. We'll read that in just a moment together. The title is Learning to Crop Sin Out of Our Lives. And I think we would all agree that um, technology has changed almost every conceivable part of our lives. I mean, you, you heard voices this morning that came through uh, a sound system. Uh, you have a screen back there, a screen up here. Uh, some of you have little screens on your wrists nowadays. I'm not cool enough to have one of those yet, but some of you have little screens that tell you, uh, you know, your, your heart rate and when people text you and what your menu options are for the week. I mean, it's just amazing the way that technology has changed nearly everything we do. And one of the ways that technology has changed our world is in the way that we take pictures as compared to how we used to take pictures. And so uh, some of you, when I do this right here in reference to a picture, you'll know what I mean. Uh, shaking a Polaroid, remember that? Well, we've got a few pictures uh, I want you all to see. Um, let's see if we can pull the first one up on the screen. Does anybody remember one of those? Okay. All right. All right. Next one. And then you have a little bit newer model, and then the next one. And then we have, of course, the famous Polaroid, where you shake it like a Polaroid picture. And then we have the, I guess this is a digital camera, okay? I'm not even sure if I remember this. And then we have next the, what is that? iPhone. So I, have, I just brought my phone up here because I have a camera on my phone, and uh, the very first digital camera that I bought had 3.2 megapixels. And I thought, man, I'm in high cotton. Like, I can see everything in my pictures with this. I can turn this this way, okay? And I can, I'm not going to take a picture of you all. I can turn this this way. And I can take a picture of you from the pulpit with an 8 megapixel camera on my phone. And it has a flash. And when the power went out last night, Carrie asked me, was I going to work that into my sermon? We lost power about 10 o'clock or so. I can take my, my flash off of my phone and turn it into a, see, technology's changed the way that you think. 
you know? And so technology has vastly, vastly really infiltrated our world. And as technology changed, especially in the area of photography, there was this thing that you probably learned to do called cropping. How many of you know what cropping is? Okay, how many of you have ever cropped a family member out of a picture that you didn't want in your picture? Okay, what, one, two, okay, all right, three, all right, I'll be honest with you guys, all right. Um, but we learned how to crop, we learned how to edit, you know, and, and we were able to remove things out of a picture, a thing or a person, you know, that we didn't want in there. We could remove them out of the picture. We'll come back to that crop motif in just a moment. But Psalm 51 is what's called a penitential psalm, coming from the word penance or repentance. And David is acknowledging his sin to God, and he's seeking forgiveness and cleansing. And in this psalm, David teaches us by his example, you'll see it almost kind of played out, how to crop sin out of our lives. Because we fall drastically short sometimes of truly repenting of sin. And Brian, actually, my Sunday school teacher, talked about this this morning, um, that repentance is something we think about with our salvation. When I was eight years old at VBS, you know, you walk an aisle and you repent of your sin. But that's not the only time that, that we ought to be repenting of sin. And so Brian didn't know that, but he was uh, a great lead-in for what we're talking about today. The Bible talks about being continually repentant. And so this crop acrostic, C-R-O-P, this crop acrostic comes from a book by Robert McGee, and it's a great memory tool that I have found helpful when thinking about repenting of sin in a biblical fashion or a biblical pattern. So let me give you a little background on Psalm 51 so that we understand the situation and what's going on. The basis for Psalm 51 uh, is David acknowledging his sin of adultery and murder to God because the prophet Nathan has come to him and confronted him. He's called him on the carpet and he tells this story. It's a parable. And he says, there's a rich man, there's a poor man, and uh, there's a guest who comes into town. And the the rich man doesn't want to give up uh, all of his flocks. And so he takes the poor man's lamb and he has it slaughtered and he offers it. And David is just outraged. He can't believe this. He says, that's terrible. Who would do such a thing? He says, that man deserves to die. And you know what Nathan looks at him and says? You're the man. Not like in a good way, like we say that today, like you are that man in that story who has sinned against God in a drastic way. So 2 Samuel chapter 12 covers that confrontation. So let me give you just a background. David should have been away at battle. The Bible says it was the time of year when the kings went off to war. So he should not have been at home. He should have been on the battlefront with his soldiers, but instead he stayed behind. And he went up onto the roof. They didn't have roofs like ours, so he wasn't kind of hanging on to the steeple, you know, like help. Uh, He was walking around on the the flat part of the palace roof, just having a stroll and and, uh, really in a place where he shouldn't have been. And one evening, he looks down and he sees this woman named Bathsheba. She was taking a bath, and she was a beautiful woman, and David desired to have her for himself. And so he did something that probably many of us are tempted to do if we have some kind of position of power or authority or influence. He leverages his position of power and influence, and he sends his messengers to go after this woman. Bring her to me, he says. And so she is brought to the king, and he lays with her. She becomes pregnant, and then he discovers this. And so he tries to cover up his tracks, and he says, Bring Uriah home from the battlefield. And he tries to convince this committed soldier, Go be with your wife. For what reason? To cover up his act of indecency. 
this illegitimate relationship. And so he says to Uriah, go do this, and Uriah won't do it. And so he, he makes this battle plan now where he's going to have Uriah sent out to the fiercest part of the fighting. And he tells his soldier, make sure that Uriah is on this fierce battlefront and have your men draw back from him so that when they do, he is killed. So not only has David engaged in this act of adultery, which is breaking one of God's Ten Commandments, second, he engages in a lie a cover-up for a year, and then third, he engages in a murder. So we're talking 30% almost of God's laws in the Ten Commandments. David is absolutely obliterating, and he spends a year trying to cover it up. So Nathan comes and calls him to account for his sin, and in this confession of David, which is Psalm 51, we find a biblical pattern for what God wants us to learn as, as far as what it means to repent of sin. Here's where most of us stop. Most of us stop, like our three or four-year-old son, daughter, you know, grandchild, uh, and we go, sorry, right? What you did is wrong, sorry, right? That's not repentance, okay? Being sorry for getting caught, that's not repentance. The Bible tells us something vastly different about repentance. And the thing about repentance is this. If you don't engage in confession of sin, if you don't engage of expunging the guilt inside of you to the Lord, when you don't do that, here's what happens. You forfeit. You forfeit. You give up the opportunity to live in close fellowship and joy and peace and, and, and closeness with the Lord. You forfeit that. You give it up. And so the, the goal of repentance is to restore us back to a right place of fellowship with the Lord. So let's read Psalm 51 and then we'll jump in together. Psalm 51 reads this way. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. I love the word, your loving kindness, I think, in the King James. It's chesed, according to your faithful love. According to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion, David says. And listen to this. My sin is always before me. Against you and you alone I've sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Not that his mother engaged in the sinful act, but he was, as the doctrine of original sin teaches, a sinner from the moment of his conception. Verse 6, Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within Purify me with hyssop. It's a little kind of furry plant that brushed blood onto uh, the sacrifice and onto the doorpost uh, at the, the Passover. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away or hide your face from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with the burnt offering. 
The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So the first thing we see in Psalm 51 is this letter C stands for confession. In verses 1 through 5, you can jot that down on your sermon notes. C stands for confession. This is the first step of biblical repentance. So David comes to, or Nathan comes to David, confronts him about his sin, and instead of lifting the rug up and trying to sweep it under there once more, there's nothing else he can do but to own up to what he's done. And the longer he tries to cover his tracks, what happens? The more miserable he becomes. That's how it is with the true child of God. When the Holy Spirit is living in you, you grow more and more and more and more miserable the longer you try to hide and cover up your sin. Warren Wiersbe says this, God does not allow his children to sin successfully. God does not allow his children to sin successfully. If we're wandering off in the direction of sin, what is he going to do? He's going to come after us in one form or another. And sometimes he allows us to experience the consequences of our sin. David is experiencing that. And Nathan told him, he says, the sword will never depart from your house. And until David's dying day, his family was in pieces because of what he had done. He experienced the consequences and it made him miserable. In the Old Testament law, deliberate and premeditated sins like adultery and murder were called sins of the high hand. You ever heard of a high-handed sin before? Talking about someone who sins defiantly. Numbers 15 says that the punishment for defiantly sinning was to be cut off from the community. Now, we don't, we don't think in those terms. Because if you sin in a high-handed way, you have your address and nobody's going to cut you off from the community. But what it means is not a removal of your address, but a removal of fellowship from being with God's people. To sin in a high-handed and defiant way, the, the requirement of that sin was to remove that person from the, the people of God. Okay, So, so we think about, in a, an extreme case, Achan who hid the treasure under his tent. And when he was asked about it, they found the pieces under there and they stoned him, but they also stoned who? His family. His family. In verse 2, it says, For I am conscious of my rebellion. David says, My sin is always before me. What's he saying? His conscience can't get over what he's done. He can't move past it. It's like when you, you spill something in your car and, and you didn't know you spilled it or you dropped some food down you know, under the seat or something like that and, and you don't find it for about six months. You know, or one of your kids hides something in a special place in your house. And, uh, you know, like a, you know, a dirty diaper. It didn't make it to the trash can, you know. And uh, you're like, hmm, you know, we got company over here. And I'm not quite sure what that smell is. Uh, and then you discover it later on. And you didn't dispose of it. The stench of something like that is always before you. David is saying this. The stench of my sin will not leave my nostrils. It stinks. I can't get it. It doesn't matter where I go. I can't get it out of my mind. I can't get it out of my heart. Verse 4 and 5, he says, Against you and you alone I've sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You're blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. 
I was sinful when my mother conceived me. I want you to listen to this, church. You and I cannot sin in secret. We cannot sin in secret. We may fool everybody around us, but God sees, God hears, and God knows what we are doing and what we are engaging in. He will not allow us to go on sinning, and we cannot sin in secret. What do they say, that old saying? It all comes out in the wash. Well, the Bible says something like that in Hebrews 4.13. Listen, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered. Everything is naked. It's uncovered. It's laid bare before the eyes of who? Of Him to whom we must give account. When I read that scripture, is that a penetrating arrow in your heart? Everything, everything is done in plain sight of God. We don't sin in secret. We sin right in God's view. Confession at its core means this. We stop trying to cover our tracks. We stop trying to lie about it. When you lie about something, what do you have to do to cover up that lie? Tell another lie. And then to cover up that one, what do you do? Tell another lie. And then you're buried underneath the weight of your deception and and, and you're just covered up with it. The best thing to do, the scripture tells us, is confess it. We stop covering our tracks. And listen, we agree with God about our sin. That's what it is to confess. God says one thing about your sin. You look at your sin, you look at the word of God, and you agree with him because you're aware of it, and you say, Lord, I have sinned. Now, let me kind of give you something to to, uh, jot down here. Confession of sin is not just a blanket general, yeah, Lord, I messed up. We sin specifically, don't we? We need to confess specifically. We need to bring things to the Lord as the Holy Spirit brings them to us and specifically say, Lord, I did this today at lunchtime, and I'm sorry for it, and I'm agreeing with you that what I did was wrong according to your word and your standards. We need to agree about our sin. But that's only the part of what it means to crop sin out. Second, verses 6 through 12 teach us about repentance. C-R, confess, repent. Once we confess our sin, we take proper steps toward repentance. Now, there's a lot of confusion about what this word repent means, but it's not as hard as we make it. It's not as complicated as we make it. Regret, someone said, is being sorry mentally. Okay, so you know you've done something wrong and you regret it. So think about King Saul. King Saul regretted what he'd done, but there was no change in his course of action. Remorse is different. Remorse is when we're sorry we did something wrong mentally and emotionally. So we know we did something wrong here, and we feel bad in here, but there's no change of course or action out here with our hands or our feet in what we are doing. But repentance is being sorry mentally, emotionally, and volitionally, your will. It is a willful change of action to turn around and go the opposite way that you have been going. So one of my favorite examples of repentance is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus. Uh, When Zacchaeus was was uh, befriended by Jesus, and Jesus saved him from his sin, what did Zacchaeus do? He gave back four times what he had taken. He repented of what he did, and he turned around, and he came back in the right direction. Richard Trench says repentance is a mighty change. A mighty change. A mighty change. 
Not just a little indecision about, well, what am I going to do now? Repentance is a mighty change in mind, heart, and life. Listen, wrought by the Spirit of God. Wrought by the the Spirit of God produces the will to repent in you. Uh, Apart from the Spirit of God, we would not desire to repent on our own. We would, Romans 3.10 says we'd keep on going the other way. All have sinned. All have sinned, Romans 3.23 says, and fallen short of his glory. And 3.10 tells us that no one seeks God. No one goes after him. So when you have the desire to repent, listen, that is evidence of the work of the Spirit of God in you, turning you around and bringing you back home to where you need to be. Rejoice in that. Don't run from repentance. As repentance is laid on your heart and you are shown, I need to turn away here. That is God saying, hey, come back. Don't do that. Come back. David says, I want to be purified. I want to be cleansed. I want to come back to the place of, listen, hearing joy and gladness. Hearing joy and gladness. When you are walking in sin, does anything sound good to you? Does anything sound joyful to you? Does anything taste good? Does anything feel good? Does anything make you happy when as a child of God, you know you're going the wrong way and you're refusing to follow the nudging of the Holy Spirit? No, you know what? For the person who is a child of God walking in sin deliberately, that is the most miserable human being on the planet. It is a miserable place. There's a period of time in my life when I was walking in sin as a freshman in college, I passed the girl. I saw her coming at the double doors back there, about that far away. And I was a believer. And she was a believer. And she was one of those people that you just, I've forgotten a lot of people I went to college with. But Jennifer Martin was a young lady who walked with God. And he was just all over her. It was all over her. And I knew that I was not walking with the Lord closely. And as I was going to pass her, there was nowhere I could go at this point except to obviously avoid her. And so I was just going to wave at her and say, hey. And she passes by me and she stops and looks at me. And I hadn't even said anything but hey. And she says, are you okay? And I knew, I knew that I knew that I knew that it was like my heart had just been laid bare right in front of her. That the Holy Spirit had showed her that I was miserable walking in my sin. And just being around a young lady who was dripping with the Holy Spirit, just being around her was convicting for me. But I have never gotten over that. I was 18. That's half my life ago. I was 18 years old. And I can still remember passing by her in that lavender t-shirt she was wearing on the way to class. God uses things like that to turn us back towards him because we are miserable. There is no joy and gladness when we are in sin. David says, the bones that were once crushed, I want them to rejoice. Is anybody in here ever broken a bone? I've broken three arms and I've only got two. I was, uh, I was the, the, the scourge of the ER. They, I, I, three arms, one pinky, two ACLs, and two ankles. Okay, I don't know how my parents raised me to adulthood. But if you've ever broken a bone, you know how miserable it is. Right, Shannon? Miserable. David uses this over and over, and it's other places as well. It's an Old Testament reference to suffering that's caused by sin. It's like the breaking of a bone. It's miserable. 
It's, it's an ache. I don't, if you haven't done it, I don't know how to explain to you, but it's a deep down ache in the core of your arm and it kind of emanates up into your body. It hurts to break a bone. Hurts badly. And David says, let the bones, who has broken? You have broken. You have crushed. Let those rejoice. Do you hear the directional change? David's not going this way anymore. The tone in his words, the the 180 degree shift in his words, he's coming back home. This is repenting. He's turned around and he's coming back the right way. You remember the story of the prodigal son? In the New Testament, he went off, spent all he had on wild living, made a mess of his life, and finally, what did he do? He came back home. The New Testament word for repentance means a change of mind, a change of direction. Verses 10 through 12 are popular. You've probably heard an old song about creating me a clean heart. They get a lot of attention because they teach us about God's saving and cleansing work in our lives. David cries out for something interesting. Look at your Bibles. Look at your Bibles. Verse 10. Read it carefully. God, create a clean heart for me or in me. Not renovate the one that's already there or remodel it just a bit according to my liking. The word in the Hebrew is bara. It's the word for what Genesis 1-1 talks about, out of nothing. There is no clean heart in me, David is saying. Create a clean heart in me where one does not exist. It calls to mind Ezekiel 36. God says, I'll take your stony heart out, Israel, and I'll put a new heart in. He's going to do spiritual heart surgery. He says, I'll put a new spirit inside of you. Repentance is a turning away from our rebellion against God and coming back home. But it doesn't stop there. This is where a lot of us stop. We confess it. We turn around, but we forget the O and the P. In verses 13 through 19, we see David obeying. This is the part where he stopped doing the wrong thing. And in place of it, he's doing the right thing that he should have been doing the whole time time. You obey what the scripture says and you do what God would have you to do. Look down um, at verse 13. After God creates his clean heart, renews his spirit, does not banish him or take the spirit from him as Old Testament times could happen. He says, then, verse 13, then I will teach. Then I will teach your ways through rebellious He says, I will sing of your righteousness. I will declare your praise. I will offer the sacrifices that you desire, which are a broken and humbled heart before you. He says, I will obey. I will do the right thing after you have cleansed me. Let me ask you a question. You ever sat in here on a Sunday morning and you listened to the choir or you listened to a special be sung, or you stood to sing a song yourself and you sung the words, but because you were walking in sin, there was an emptiness. There was a hollowness. It was like the words fell out of your mouth and just collapsed onto the ground and broke. And the words didn't ascend up to the throne room of heaven. You just, you couldn't seem to find your, your sweet spot in worshiping with the Lord because you were walking in sin. Have you ever tried to teach a lesson or lead a group? When there was some kind of unrepentant, sinful pattern in your life. That's because obedience cannot come before confessing and repenting. Obedience comes after. You confess, you repent, and then you obey and do what God would have you to do. God gives you a willing heart and a willing spirit. That's what he says in verse 12. In verse 16 and 17, it tells us God's not interested in just outward conformity. 
So we can come here and do all of the religious things that we were interested in doing. If you're signed up for this committee or that committee, you can go about all of your duties serving the Lord. You can sing, you can preach, you can lead, you can usher, you can give and do all of those things outwardly. But look at what David says. He says, God, you're not interested in just outward conformity. God doesn't want us to just keep a list of rules. What is he after? Verse 17 heart. What did Jesus say in the Gospels? If you love me, you'll obey my commands. If you love me, if you desire me, you will do what I say. Obedience is the loving and joy-filled response that comes when we repent and we find forgiveness through the blood of Christ. And then fourth is P, praise. Praise. This is, this is the part on our prayer list. This is the part in our discussions in Sunday school classes. This is the part in our private prayer journals that we almost never make it to. We'll confess. We'll repent. We might even obey and do the right thing, but we forget to turn back. And we're like the nine lepers that would not turn back and thank Jesus for being cleansed. You remember that story? Jesus healed 10 lepers and how many turned around and said thank you? One. 90% of the ones Jesus healed in that episode right there, did not turn back and praise him. This is such a big deal. Giving praise to God is a huge part of cropping sin out of our lives. It completes that cycle of turning back. So if you go back to the story of the prodigal son again, go back to that story and look at what the father did. When his son came home, what did the father do? He praised. He celebrated. We don't know what the son said, but boy, that father was praising and celebrating and he was completing, consummating that cycle of his son's repentance. That's what David is doing here. He says, I can't wait for future times, uh, future times to praise you of your mercy and your grace on my life. Listen, I think it would do us all some good, all of us, to extend the praise section in your private prayer journal. We, we, man, we can make a list of praises especially for physical healing. And that's important. But these bodies aren't going to last in this life for forever. But man, the things that God does, we ought to praise Him and celebrate Him and give thanks to Him for what He has done in our lives and for us. I want you to listen to this quote by Seneca, who was a pagan philosopher in Rome. Around the time of the Apostle Paul, actually, he said this, Listen to this. Didn't believe in Christ. He said, we must say of ourselves, we must say of ourselves that we are evil. We have been evil. And unhappily, I must add, we shall also be evil in the future. Nobody, listen to this, nobody can deliver himself. Someone must stretch out a hand to lift him up. So even a pagan philosopher in Rome in the first century recognizes that we are thoroughly corrupt in our human nature. He's affirming, he's affirming, unknowing to himself, he's affirming the doctrine of original sin, that every person that ever walks this planet, because of what Adam and Eve did, inherit a sin nature. I've said this a lot lately, but we're not born as children of God. We're born as his enemies because of the sin nature within us. And if Jesus did not stretch his hand out here and his hand out there across that cross and take our sin with his blood and with his body, if he did not do that, we would remain his enemies 
until the time of judgment. Seneca shared the gospel for us in a pagan sort of worldview. We're evil. We can't save ourselves. Someone must save us. Is that not what the gospel says? That is exactly what the gospel says. 1 John 1.9, listen to this. If we confess our sins, if we agree with God about our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? All. You know what the word all means in the Greek? All. He wipes the slate clean as we confess and repent, obey and praise. As we confess our sins before God, He is faithful, meaning this, He will never turn His back on you. He will never forget about you. He will never say, oh, that's three strikes, you're out. God's not an umpire. And He's just, and the justifier of the just. He's just, meaning He is perfectly righteous. No sin in Him. So that whomever He wants to pardon... As they confess and come back, he can pardon. He's just. He's faithful. He'll never turn his back on you. And he's just. He can forgive you. If he wasn't faithful, you'd be in trouble. If he wasn't just, you'd be just as much in trouble. So let me give you a couple of closing thoughts this morning in what we do with the penitential psalms because there's more than just this one. One purpose of the penitential psalms is to help us as we process our own experiences of sin and guilt and grief and shame. If you have ever carried guilt for your sin, if you've carried that around and you just thought, I don't know who to talk to about this. I don't know how to even go about dealing with this. I don't know how to unload this off of my back. You can turn to the Psalms. The very words of God in the penitential Psalms, listen, are not unlike David's experiences. We do some of the very same things. And these psalms help us to make sense of our struggles. And they walk us through. They almost hold our hands as we confess, repent, obey, and praise the Lord. Also, they give us God's perspective. They give us God's perspective on our sin. What do we tend to do with our sin? Do, do we blow it up and put it on the screen for everybody to see on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock? No. What do we do? We want to minimize it, downplay it, sweep it under the rug, kind of twist it and angle it just a little bit and retell it in, in a certain way that we're all of a sudden the victim. Is, is anybody here not guilty of that? Just let me know. No, all of us. That's why we need God's perspective to help us look in the mirror and plainly see what the Bible says about us as sinners, that we are sinners. We have broken God's law. We have sinned against His holiness. And while we hurt other people like David hurt Bathsheba and Uriah and his nation, who have we sinned against first and most? Against God. God never treats sin the way that we do. He maximizes it, in fact, and put it on His Son. I'm going to close with this Puritan prayer called Continual Repentance from the book Valley of Vision. Listen to this prayer. Matter of fact, I'll tell you what. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Bow your head for a moment. And with everything that we've just talked about today, I want you to let these words just sort of sift slowly through your mind. 
Let them wind their way down into your heart and think about the words of this prayer. The writer says, O God of grace, God of grace, you have imputed my sin to my substitute. You have imputed his righteousness to my soul, clothing me with a bridegroom's robe, decking me with jewels of holiness. I am always going off into the far country and always returning home as a prodigal, always saying, Father, forgive me. And you are always bringing forth the best robe. Every morning, let me wear it. Every evening, return in it. Go out to the day's work in it. Be married in it. Be wound in death in it. And stand before the great white throne in it. And enter into heaven in that robe shining as the sun. Grant me, Lord, never to lose sight of your exceeding of the exceeding sinfulness of sin and the exceeding righteousness of your salvation, the exceeding glory of Christ, the exceeding beauty of your holiness, and the exceeding wonder of grace. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, let me encourage you to do this today. To follow David's example. To take your sin seriously. Don't weigh it on the scales and say, well, it's not as bad as the person beside of me. It's not as bad as what I heard about on the news. Your sin, your sin and mine has caused us to offend the holiness of a righteous and holy God. Let me encourage you to follow David's example. Confess your sin today specifically to God. Repent of it. Come back home. Ask for a willing heart, as the psalm says here, to keep his word in obedience. And then don't forget, don't forget, as he heals and delivers and cleanses you and purifies you, don't forget to turn back around and praise him and thank him for what he has done in you and for you and with you. Because without him, the scripture says, we can do nothing. As our musicians come to play, I want you to keep your heads bowed, eyes closed. And take a moment, just you and the Lord. Just you and the Lord. Ask the Spirit to search your heart. Ask the Lord to give you a supple and softened heart to be clay in his hand for him to be able to shift and change and transform and work in you. 
Come clean before him today. And if you've never repented of your sin and the Holy Spirit is knocking on your heart's door this morning and saying to you, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you need to turn from your sin and come back home and be received as a son or a daughter of the King and be forgiven and cleansed and right with me. If, if the Lord is saying that to you, don't ignore that voice. Bow the heart, bow the knee now. Because one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And we are far better to bow the knee today and confess with our tongue that he is Lord. If you've never received salvation in Christ, today can be that day. Father, I pray that you would stir us Lord, some of us need to be shaken. Shake us. But stir us with your spirit. Move us. To be able to even say that we're aware of our sin and we agree at the wrong that we have been doing. This putrid filth in your sight. All of it. Let us confess and be cleansed today. Fathers, we stand and we sing. We pray that your spirit will work in us in a special way, in a restoring way. Be gracious to us according to your mercy and your grace, your loving kindness. Blot out our sins, our rebellion, as we confess those before you today. And let today be a new start for many in this place. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand and we'll sing our closing song of invitation together.
need that we face. God, I pray over this congregation, your people gathered together in this place this morning. Lord, I pray that you would give us the stillness of mind and heart that we need in order to hear from you. I pray that you would help us to see in our lives places that we are trying to wrestle circumstances or outcomes out of your hands into ours. Help us to roll them away. God, give us the freedom. Release us from the bondage of the iniquity of anger. And let us give up our grudges. And when Satan tempts us to despair as we look at someone we see fighting against God, Lord, I pray that we would lift our eyes to Christ. As Hebrews talks about, who endured suffering who was still and waited and and committed his way even over to you, saying, not his will, but yours be done. We ask you, Lord, to move in such a way this morning through your Holy Spirit that leaves us changed, that gives us insight, that counsels us in the way we should go when no other human newspaper advice columnist can seem to help. Father, as we sing, as we pray, as we close this time of worship, we thank you that you invite us into your throne room because of Jesus and through the Holy Spirit that lives in us. And when we don't even know what to say, we know that your Spirit prays for us, intercedes for us, with groans that are deeper than the words that we have in our heads. We come before you this morning. We lift up our eyes. We lift up our voices. We remember everything you've done for us in the past. We thank you for the future and the hope we have. Teach us what to do when we don't know what to do. In Jesus' name we pray.